Hello, this is Jeff Friedman, the host of the Trauma Informed Podcast. And on today's show, we have Chris Grosso, and we have a juicy conversation about addiction and spirituality. Go ahead and listen in. If you could just, just introduce yourself, and you talked a little bit about where you're calling from, and uh, if you have, I always like to ask everybody if they have one particular quote that comes to mind that, that they would say that it inspires them or inspires their work. Ah, sure, sure. Okay, so, well, my name is Chris Grasso, and we're talking today, I'm, I'm in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, and I guess a little about myself, I... I don't know. I, I wrote a couple of books. I, I speak at conferences and, and events, and I, do, I volunteer my time in rehab centers and hospitals and those struggling with addictions. I'm passionate about working with people just in, in, in regards to healing in general. And as far as a quote, I guess one of my favorites that, that kind of, I think, coincides with the work I do is actually from an author and a poet named Charles Bukowski. And he had once said that we are here to laugh at the odds and live our lives so well that death will tremble to take us. And I really like that. I often will end talks I give or workshops I do with that because I, I really personally find a lot of inspiration in that. Living our lives so well that death will tremble to take us. So, yeah, that's a little about me. Oh, and I should say, I should yeah, yeah. say I'm the spiritual director for Toivo by Advocacy Unlimited as well, which is why and how we connected in the first place. So so I didn't have a bio. I have a bio, but I didn't have it prepared to read today. But um very passionate about my work with Toivo as well. So oh, is anyway, Advocacy yeah. Unlimited the, the same thing or are they different? They're, they're slightly different. Advocacy Unlimited is the kind of the main group of Connecticut, and Toivo is under their umbrella. So they're a okay. subdivision of Advocacy Unlimited. But they all do tremendous work in Connecticut for those that are looking for various healing modalities. Uh, a lot of it does fall under the addiction services mm -hmm. umbrella, but not just strictly to that. You know, we all, in our own way, are healing from something. Right. is wonderful about offering all of these different means and methods and approaches to really working with whatever pain we have inside, whatever experiences we've gone through, and, and, and finding the ways that work for us individually to heal from those experiences. Yeah, since you're, you come from a little bit of the addiction, the background, I guess, personally and professionally, one of the things that I'd like to bring up from my own experience working in, in rehab centers in Florida and and also my you know peripheral involvement with the, just from the 12 steps in the AA, is, is that I think that one of the, I mean, they do a lot of the, a lot of people derive a lot of healing from the 12 steps and all that, but I think one of the big flaws is this idea that, uh, like, the uh, people that are addicted are sort of se separate from the rest of humanity, that there's, some, there's something different about them. To me, in my perspective, is more that I think we're all, you know, we all have some addictive tendencies and we all do things in our lives to try to relieve suffering. And, I mean, to me, addiction is always about trying to... Often, not always, but it's well, a large component of it is trying to alleviate pain or trying to find some trying to find some meaning in the world. And I was wondering, yeah, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I completely agree. I mean, regardless of what the substance is, we all have our own ways of looking to escape from our emotions, from our pain, right. from you know whatever life experiences we have not worked through. 
So for some of us, that might be turning to things like drugs, such as cocaine or heroin or alcohol, whereas for others, it might be turning towards food or sex or shopping or numbing out with television. So I agree. We all have our own tendencies towards, you know, these addictive patterns. Of course, you know, obviously some of them create more difficult life situations than others. You know, the person who is addicted to television is much less likely to find themselves incarcerated than those sure. went down that road of uh, drug or alcohol abuse. But it doesn't mean that it's really any less severe on the personal subjective experiential level. You know, they're right. still uh, numbing out, you know, and they're still sure. suppressing this this pain, this, you know, the pain or traumas or whatever it might be that is within. So uh, I, I appreciate that viewpoint that you share. It, it, yes, we... The the drug addict perhaps might have a bit of a different brain chemistry. You know, our brains may have developed a bit differently, which starts in childhood. That actually is discussed by a wonderful man named uh, Gabor Mate. Yes. Yeah, one of yeah one of the addiction specialists of the world. And, and yeah, I just saw him speak in North Carolina last week. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, he's yeah. tremendous. I just interviewed him for a new book I'm working on myself a few weeks ago, and oh, awesome. uh, it was a very insightful and profound conversation. Yeah. Of course, so I love his perspective on it. And he uses his own example, saying that he was addicted to purchasing <laughs> classical music. music. Yeah, yeah. So he says, "Look, I I didn't struggle with the drugs or alcohol, but my behaviors were very much the same: the obsessive compulsive thinking." the sneaking, the lying to his wife. So absolutely, we all, in our own ways, have, you know, these addictive tendencies. Yeah, and I also saw that you're connected with Noah Levine. Yeah, Noah wrote the uh, forward for my first book, and he has just become a friend over the years. I really uh, appreciate his approach to the teachings of Buddhism and, of course, his newest endeavor with what he calls Refuge Recovery. Um, yeah, I think he's great. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I want to talk about specifically. I've been trying to. Ma- I haven't made it out to one of their meetings. I really would like to see how they they how they're conducted and the, the vibe there. But I know it yeah. seems that they have a center in Asheville where I was about a week ago. But I know they're doing some meetings here in South Florida, but I haven't made it to one. But yeah, uh, they're it looks like they're they're trying to develop they're trying to develop a bit of a following down here. But just to, the twelve steps I feel are so prevalent that it's hard to really they're sort of over over overshadowed overshadowed by that. But uh, yeah, I was wondering yeah. what uh, your had you participated in that at all the refuge recovery or what yeah when I'm. When I'm back in Connecticut, I do. There's no meetings here in Ottawa at this time, but there's like four or five in Connecticut, which is great. There was only one or two in the beginning, and then a few more uh, have popped up recently. And it's it's cool to see that they are actually popping up more and more throughout the U.S., and there are some in Canada. There's some throughout the world, actually. they're, They're spread out worldwide. But, you know, what I like about it, and this is not to take anything away from the 12 steps, because I also see value in those fellowships as well. Right. Um, but what I like about refuge recovery is for those people that just cannot get past some of the, the terms used, you know, a lot of the God language and whatnot. Right. It's just really, really hard for some people. So the refuge recovery approach uh, does take out that language. And it's not that it's just simply the 12 steps minus that language. It does take more of uh, the approach of meditation, which, of course, right. you'll find in 12 steps. But it really looks at the, the source of suffering the it, through the lens of Buddhism. 
and looking at the craving and desires, mm-hmm. you know, all teachings you'll find in Buddhism, but in relation to whatever substance it was you were using, you know, as a means of escaping. And the meaning formats are pretty cool, too, because they'll start with usually uh, a guided meditation. It's roughly right. about 20 minutes or so. And it might be on loving kindness. It, you know, there's there's a few different topics, but they'll guide those there through this 20-minute meditation. And then they'll do a, a reading from the book. And then it opens up to a uh, discussion. And that's the general format of the meeting. Wait, the reading so, for the book, what, what, what they use the 12 stuff? They have their own book? Oh, sorry. No, they, they use the Refuge Recovery book as their okay, own core text. Yeah. So they'll do a reading from that book. And, you know, I've talked to Noah about it, and, and Noah made a really cool point to me, was he said what he has found with Refuge Recovery is not only does it provide us a place for those who just can't find their footing in the formal 12-step fellowships, but what he's also seen that he did not anticipate is that it has allowed a lot of people that didn't feel comfortable there to, once they worked with Refuge Recovery a while, to actually then go on and also work with 12-step fellowships. It's just something about, you know, getting more rooted in in this recovery process in whatever way, you know, works for the individual. But then it allows them to open up a bit more and to relinquish whatever, you know, hesitations they had. I mean, based on the main, his major point, I don't know if you've seen his TED Talk about, I really like his sort of mantra from the TED Talk is that the opposite uh, of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. And to me, my perspective is, is, that to me, the secret sauce of why the 12 step works when it, when it does isn't really necessarily about their teachings. It's about, it's, it's providing that fellowship and the connection and, and the, and that people often, you know, one of the reasons when they get involved with problematic addiction is that they're, they're lacking a meaningful connection in their life. And I mean, mm-hmm. spirituality can provide more of a nourishing form of connection or why I think often spirituality is helps people heal and recover and I was wondering what your what your take is on that. Sure, that you know that that certainly resonates for me. You know, in my own life I've noticed with uh a lot of the times that I've relapsed it was because I lost that connection, you know, whether it was with a uh, a network of recovering people or family and friends, almost every time, not every time, but almost every time I would tend to isolate I'd often be living um, by myself in an apartment, and I was never one of the kind of uh, drinkers or druggers that would really go out and do in public. I would just usually be by myself in home or at my apartment and and doing it. So there was no real connection. The other side of it, though, is that I do believe uh, it's important to uh, explore that there really are these wounds and traumas that we have within ourselves. So connection is wonderful. That is certainly a core uh, aspect of healing in the recovery process, but also addressing what is going on within us. Because if we have this connection, that's great. But if we still have these wounds, they're going to continue to come up until we right. deal with them, until we look at them, we walk through them. You know, and again, whatever way we find that works for us to do that, and there's no shortage of them. So... I think he's very, very much onto something with that connection. Absolutely. But, and I don't know if he goes on to talk about this in his book or not, but, you know, dealing with that, that pain within ourselves, that is of equal importance as far as my, at least my direct experience. Oh, no, I, I, I agree. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. he, I mean, the, the book is more focused. I mean, he's not, he's a journalist and he's more talking, it's more about the history of the war on drugs and, 
and, and sure. examining different policies in other countries like Portugal and other parts of the world that handle drugs, drug policies differently. It's not really focused so much on the healing. I mean, it's taking more of a broad perspective, not really looking on the individual healing uh, process yeah. so much. But uh, I was also wondering what your if you could, I'm wondering what the, in terms of the refuge recovery community, if you could speak to this, what, what is their take regarding harm reduction practices? You know, I, I don't know what their uh, take is. I really don't. So I, I don't know. I couldn't speak on behalf of them, Noah, or someone, you know, okay. more directly affiliated. Cause I, I attend the meetings, but I am in no way like officially involved with them. You know, I, I appreciate their work in the world and I, have suggested people check out their fellowship, but I really, I don't know. Yeah, that would, yeah, like I said, it would just, someone from their camp directly would have to respond to that. Oh, but what is, I guess what well, would your own particular take on harm reduction? Sure, I mean, my own take, it's a tricky one. It is a tricky one. I was speaking yesterday with a friend, actually someone I have not talked to, and, and boy, it's been probably about a year, someone I went to high school with, and and I know he's had his struggles with addiction. He Last I knew he was sober, and, and that was good, but we hadn't talked in a while. I got this phone call yesterday evening, or a voicemail from him, and I could just hear the pain in his voice. And he said, you know, I need you to, to call me, like, as soon as you can. And so I called him uh, a few minutes later, and, and he told me how uh, it was four days ago he had – well, uh, sorry, about a week ago he went back to heroin. and. Uh-huh. He And in a matter of four days, he ended up uh, overdosing, and he died for 20 minutes, and they had to use Narcan to bring him back. And, right. and, you know, that was really hard to hear. And so as I talked to him yesterday, it had been four days since he got out of the hospital, and he had he has a meeting scheduled on Wednesday to go get back on methadone. And I view methadone personally as a form of harm reduction. And, and it, you know, so it's it's tricky. To me, talking to him in that moment, while I'm not a big fan of it, if it's going to keep him at least for the initial stages, off of returning to heroin and potentially overdosing again, then I'm all for it. But as, you know, I've seen and and many have seen time and again, you know, we get on these certain things, you know, whether it's methadone or antabuse or alcohol or whatever, and we just become completely dependent on that. And and it acts as this crutch that we never are able to let go of, you know, so we're just locked into something else. So, you know, it's, (laughs) it's, it's a very tricky topic and I think at the end of the day it's really a case-by-case scenario for each individual regarding harm reduction and where they're at and what they are sincerely able to do right but but, but I mean, if you look at it in more the broader broader context of harm reduction uh, of what it's about the way I look at it like I mean, you go to 12-step meetings and you know you have people smoking cigarette chain smoking cigarettes or uh, Drinking tons of coffee, and both their nicotine and and coffee are are psychoactive drugs. Uh, they, they and it's just sure. sometimes we don't look at them that way because they're so socially acceptable. Whereas, I think their whole because of that their whole logic of of that that if uh, that somebody who's an addict that they can't take any mind altering substance, it just doesn't really make sense if you look at how most of the people in recovery actually practice. It's just trying to. Yeah. yeah, be more – I mean, I think it, to me, my perspective, it's more about obviously, you know, the terms of how dangerous something is. Heroin's would be a lot more dangerous than, than cigarettes, but it's – to me, it's more having a more of a mindful relationship to to things that change your mood and really just trying to live in more of a mindful way. 
I, and I like that. You know, I, I appreciate that, you know, your your take on that. I, I often, I cringe, not cringe, but, you know, these days I don't like when people ask me, well, how long have you been sober? I understand people celebrate that, and I think that's great. But, it, you know, I really, I started to explore that question uh, uh-huh. about a year ago. You know, what really is sobriety? And I started realizing, you know what? There are times, though, where I will act out in the way that I eat. You know, right. I, I go through periods where I'm really good and I'm mindful and I eat healthy and and then there are other times where I find, you know, maybe it's just the day, maybe it lasts a few days, but where I will eat poorly. You know, I will eat, like, processed and sugary foods. Right. I will eat that excessively to the point of, like, it's literally the way I used to consume alcohol. Right. You know, I just, like they say, one is too many, a thousand is never enough. I will go back to the kitchen every five or ten minutes and grab something else just to put in, in my body because, you know, I'm trying to avoid whatever feelings uh, that are coming up. It's way less frequently, and it continues as my life goes on to get less frequently or less frequent. But those experiences still come up for me. So, you know, is that sobriety? I don't know. I'm not take. I'm not consuming drugs or alcohol, sure, but you know, I'm still acting out in other ways in my life, and I'm aware of it happening. So, right, right. Well, and, and I and I know people that are in the the the, the program, and they they may be somewhat so abstinent from substances, but they're just even forget about it. They, you know, most of them do smoke cigarettes, but even, just not even talking about the substances. But they just the way they behave in such an erratic, dysregulated way. To me, that's to me that's not. But, but sobriety, I think again, it's, it's so focused on not using substances, right. where I think it should be more targeted people behaving in more of a regulated, more sure. purposeful way. Right. Yes. Agreed. And and I like when I was talking to Gabor. You know, he was talking about sobriety and it's just the abstinence of consuming yeah. drug or alcohol. It's not recovery. It's just yeah. abstinence. You know, right. it's recovery like you like you're alluding to. You know, it's it's our behaviors, it's our mindful relationship with uh, every aspect of our lives. And I think you I heard you say psychedelics before too and and that's something that Gabor also advocates for with certain Oh yeah, people. no he's a big you know, ayahuasca the, yeah, ayahuasca guy. Yeah. Yeah. He also will talk about MDMA and mushrooms as well in regards to treating anything from Nicotine addiction to depression. Well, and I haven't I've heard him talk even, about that. I'm not surprised that I haven't heard him talk about it. Yeah. That. Oh, yeah. He advocates for that. Not. It's not a blanket statement for all people, you know, in all situations. But with some people in some situations, you know, when he talks about these studies that have been done, you know, the, the results are, are pretty overwhelming in the positive category. And that's something I've advocated for myself years ago before I even actually read about Gabor and his work. Uh-huh. Um, but in my first book, I write about the fact that I I look back, you know, because I took a lot of psychedelics in my uh-huh. younger years, and I look back and I see the effect they had in my life, not in a negative way, but I see how they were pretty big in opening and expanding my consciousness at a younger age. I'm not saying that they are necessary to do that for anyone, but I can respect the impact they had, whereas I look at, you know, the crack I smoked or the coke mm-hmm. that I, I snorted and the alcohol I drank, and they had no redeeming value whatsoever. Whereas these other substances, yes, I see that. And I am friends with people today that, you know, still do psychedelics in a more of a quote-unquote spiritual context, the context of awakening and healing. And who am I to say that that's bad? You know, right. I think for them it works, and that's that's fine. I have nothing in No, but, but I think one of the good, interesting points about psychedelics in particular is not even just the, the, the chemical structure of, of the, the drugs, which are fascinating in right. their own regard, is the, the way people traditionally use them. And, and 
especially more in the indigenous cultures that it's that people have ceremonies around it and ritual and then they create so much community around it but they also yeah. to me they take more of a of a harm reduction approach to the the, the substance and that people uh there's sort of a, there's a reverence for the uh it's not really encouraged to abuse it it's, it's supposed to be your sort of reverence for the the plant or whatever whatever it is I mean, right it's not it's a very it's a sacred undertaking um, yeah. in, in all of those contexts, and I think the difference with psychedelics in most cases, or at least in regards to those that are in recovery or looking to heal traumas, et cetera, is they're not taking them as a means of escape, which right. is what is usually the case with alcohol, with coke, or with heroin. You know, you're just trying to numb yourself out. Where it's the polar opposite with psychedelics, these things are bringing all of that muck down there right to the forefront, you know. Right. So it's not like you're taking them to party and and you know have a good time. I mean, I mean I'm, some people do. I know I did in the past, but right. they're not the, the go-to, you know, kind of thing where it's just going to numb you out. So you know, I again, I do see the the benefit there, and for some people in some cases, and but like I said in the, the beginning of our conversation, really. It, each individual is unique in their recovery. I, I truly believe that. Well, and I think that's part of what – oh, go ahead. Yeah, well, I wanted to come back to that a little bit, and I, I totally agree with you on that one. But, but this sort of this concept that I, I've thought about my own and regarding this, and it, it's very relevant to the, the 12 steps, and I think any other also like peer support regarding mental health. But I, I, I very much support peer support, and I think there's tremendous value in it. Uh, but I, I think one of the dangers is that when people start saying that this is my experience, this is how I recovered for, from addiction or bipolar or psychosis or whatever it is, and they say you have to do it my way, and people become very coercive right. and controlling about being right. very uh, pushy with people. So I, I was wondering, right. yeah, wondering what your thoughts on that are. Yeah, I think that is the completely wrong approach to take, uh, personally, just speaking for myself. But yeah. anytime you're trying to tell someone that your way is the way, like that, that to me is a red flag to just get out, run. And I, and I tell people that I do a lot of writing and speaking in regards to spirituality as well, not just regarding addiction or recovery, but just general spirituality. Right. And I say the same thing. You need to find Whatever path, whatever tradition, whatever spirituality looks like for you, maybe it'll be formally religious, maybe it'll have nothing to do with religion at all, whatever. But you need to find your truth. You are the only one living within your body. You're the only one having your experiences. You are the only one who will know what really resonates as true for you in regards to spirituality, in regards to recovery, in regards to life in general. So, you know, I the only thing I ever advocate for is I advocate for those to take a look within themselves and find their truth. And and, and that's not to say you can't look outside for help, for, for pointers, for guides, but you've got to always look within and, and, you know, what is true for you? What is true? That, at the end of the day, uh, is the only thing I think any of us can really count on. No, know, no I, I agree, but I wonder experience. if you have any ideas in, in regarding, uh, you know, peer support groups, how to prevent that from happening, people telling people what to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's possible to prevent it. You know, yeah. how do we prevent uh, ISIS from bombing? How do we right. prevent, um, <laughs> you know, any? how do we prevent the people that attack Muslims, you know, for wearing, you know, the clothes they wear? I, I don't know. I think I, I think all I can do 
personally is is share you know my experience when I write and when I talk and sure. collective groups like Toivo that I'm affiliated with you know they show up and they offer instead of you know trash talking something else they they are like Gandhi says they're being the change they wish uh-huh. to see in the world you know they're offering another approach a, a more integrative and holistic approach and one that basically says come as you are you know like uh-huh. come as you are be as you are when you're here we're not pushing any agenda we're just here in the spirit of recovery and healing you know and and that to me is is, is i guess how we would combat it if if word to combat it at all. Yeah, and and I think that the key is also from my own analysis of it is that trying to show that you can do it, you you know, places like Toivo can do their thing and and they can be viable and successful doing it their way. I mean, to me that's often the challenge why a lot of people subscribe to a lot of these things that I think aren't very true and aren't very helpful but they just have a lot of power and a lot of financial backing unfortunately but yes yeah no you're very much correct and i look at a lot of the uh rehab facilities i went through when i was younger and it's not to say i didn't learn anything from them because you know there i certainly did and i learned about addiction and you know and 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 that was fine but it was a very straightforward you go to the 12 steps you don't use and that's that's what i got you know that's what's still to this day Oh, well, I know. Did you ever go to any recovery in Florida? That's what I was wondering. I went, yeah. Actually, one of the uh, rehabs I went to was in Florida. It was in, ah, where was it? This man was like 10 years ago. Not Miami. No, Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. Oh, really? Well, uh, you know the name of it? Or remember? I'm trying to remember. It's so bad that I've been to like about eight or nine different ones that I can't exactly remember all of them. Yeah. I know this one actually shut down shortly uh-huh. after I went okay. to it. Well, it wasn't. Well, yeah, it wasn't bad, but it was it was part of a network where they had a few different centers, not just Florida, but I think there was one in California and maybe Texas and New Jersey. It wasn't part of the recovery place. What's that? Not the recovery place. No, not the recovery place. God, you know, and of course I'll, like, remember it later. It'll just hit me like a ton of bricks. But it's really just not coming to mind right now. But, yes, I did. I It was about two months, I think, I was in the program down there. Okay. And they took a very boot camp approach. I right. was the only one I ever went to, but it was a real boot camp. Like you're, you're, you know, really you're calling right. out your your right. own BS. And yeah. I need personally, it worked uh, yeah. a bit for me at the time because that's what I needed. I saw how it didn't work for others. And but anyways, the all the other programs I went to, for the most part, did not take an integrative approach. You know, and, right. and they did not. It was just again. 12 steps, don't use, go to meetings. And well, that a lot of them are people. going more. I mean, even the ones that are traditionally like that, they're trying, obviously, because it's, in a way, it's almost mandated now that they incorporate yoga or something like that. But it's still, to me, it's not uh, it's not enough of a shift. That, that it, it, Generally, what I've observed also is that this last one that I worked at a, a couple, several months four or five months ago that initially I connected with the one of the owners and he's in recovery and he was saying that you know he doesn't he doesn't believe the boot camp approach doesn't work and that pe- you know people mm. in recovery need love and compassion and all that but it's the people that, like that they say that and I think he he does have his heart in the right place but you know, once people start acting up or whatever it always goes back they revert that's like the default mode of operating the boot camp approach 
they can't, right, sure. they can't sort of sit with the the angst or the, the the dysregulated emotions and really try to work with it. It's always that you have to be you have to react, be tough with it. And and, I, and from my vantage point, I really don't. That's not who I am. I don't really believe in it. Right. Yep. Generally not. Like I said, it was at that time in my life. It was. It, it did. You know, it was a bit helpful. But I ended up relapsing again. You know, and yeah. so. <laughs> I, it, you know, it was what it was, but I did learn some things about myself. But, you know, again, each, really, each person is unique in their own recovery needs. A, a professor of mine, actually, old professor in school who's, uh, she runs what's called, the, it's called DARC, the Drug and Alcohol Recovery Counselor Program. And she, her thesis for, for her own schooling was about taking a, an approach like, or a, a test like the Myers-Briggs, a personality right. test. And actually using that as a template for each individual that enters into a recovery program. So you where where is she based these, out of? Where, well, she's she based out of Connecticut. Yeah, in Connecticut. And it's not that that has been implemented yet, but that was her, her, her thesis and, and what she worked on. Because, you know, she sees that, like, this kind of blanket approach to getting sober doesn't work most of the time. It's like I've been saying, it's an individual process. And to imagine if, you know, each person, we took the time to look at their situation, their circumstances, what they're going through, rather than just, you know, trying to get them in and out as quickly as possible. Right. I mean, that's, 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 that's what I, I, you know, that's what I've always tried to do when I've worked in the rehabs, but I, I generally don't, yeah. uh, I don't really fit in at the, the work working environment because it's all about just, you know, that machine just trying to crank people in and out and it's, that's what it's the way they're, they're run and that's how they're sort of financially viable, unfortunately. That's that's all Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. So uh, you know, and the the other hard part about it is that when state funding is constantly getting cut because it's usually addiction services are usually or mental health services are almost always the first thing to get cut when money needs to go. It just makes it that much harder to get the right treatment for people. You know, so again, they come in and it's just this broad general approach and and everyone's receiving the same services rather than an individual, you know, they're not being looked at as individuals with unique circumstances. Right, but, but regarding that, I mean, one of the things that I, I believe that I, and I thought it isn't often talked about enough this way for a variety of reasons, that I, I really think that peer support has the potential to really transform the mental health and addiction services if it's uh, used properly, that it could actually reduce the cost and help to tailor the the approach to the individuals. I was wondering... Uh, yeah, if you have any thoughts about that. No, I mean, if it's to me, it's one of those cases where you know we would need to see it in action to see if it really could do that. And right. if it could, hey man, I'm I'm all for if whatever works uh, within reason, of course. But to to get a more integrative, holistic approach, an integral look at each individual and their recovery process, then, then great, let's do it. You know, let's do it and let's really get on this thing. Uh, because as we're seeing, that the statistics just continue to grow and grow, and the people, uh, especially young people, you know, that are dying at rapid rates, it's, it's terrifying. You know, it really, and it's so unnecessary. That's the heartbreaking thing to me, is that it is so unnecessary. You know, yeah. if people had had the kind of services that they really needed, 
and it's not to say no one would die from from drugs and alcohol because obviously that's not realistic. But I, in my heart, I believe gr- definitely those statistics would be reduced greatly. And that's the most frustrating thing that at the end of the day, money is standing in the way of that. You know, budgets need to be cut, this, this and that, you know. Ugh. I'm sorry, I'm like getting lost in my words right now. Cause I yeah, like, <laughs> but, but I actually wanted to go back to one of the earlier things you said related to a harm reduction approach, which I, I think really would also have the potential to to save lives in the broader scheme of things. And how, how you mentioned yourself how you used a lot of when you were using, you use a lot in isolation, and I think, yeah, particularly with the opiates, there's just stigma around that. If 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 the people were brought out of the alleys and the the, the dope houses and were using in public places, although to actually get that to happen would be very hard. But I think if you bring a lot of these people out of the shadows and you have more people that are acting with people that are active uh, IV drug users, that would help, too. And people related to them, they wouldn't be afraid of them so much, and, and that would ha- just that kind of thing would help tremendously. But. So you mean that the general the general population would see what's actually going on more readily than, than not? Right, and, and also just from a practical yeah. standpoint, if somebody is shooting up and, and they've overdosed, that people would see it and identify it and call right. the paramedics, and they would sure. come quicker, just yeah. Yeah. Just, cool. Okay. Yeah, I hear you saying. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for a variety of ways. Would, I mean, this problem is there's so many different angles to it that it's it's not it's not going to yeah. be fixed by one. You know, you're going to have to have policy changes. You're going to have to have you know changes in the the treatment providers. You're going to you know you're going to have to yeah like those two things are going to be needed to be shifts. The, it's not just about the treatment, it's also about the policy, but, the, you know, it's, they interact with each other. Right, yes, yeah. It <laughs> There are so many different ways to approach it and tackle it, and it would be great to see, you know, that movement continue on. I mean, there I know there are people that are working so hard towards it, not just in the U.S., but I see it here in Canada, I see it throughout the world. Well, yeah, well, related to Gabor Mate, that he, I know, he helped to develop the first safe injection center in, near, outside of Vancouver. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever been so over there? Even, I No, I've never been to Vancouver. But, I mean, even, yeah, something like that, it's, you know, it's just, it. God, it's it's heartbreaking to see that, you know, that people still use, but at the same time, right, it's a safe center. You You have eyes on the people. You have... You know, you're getting clean materials. It's it's the lesser of evils. That's right. Sure. And at the end of the day, I mean, even if people don't agree with it for whatever their moral or, or personal reasons, you can't really argue if yeah. you do. If you're if if, the, if you're keeping somebody alive, there's always hope that they can get better. If they're dead, there's not really. Yeah. That's it. So in the bottom line. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I think you would, you've probably encountered this. I mean, that whole, like, there, there are certain people that are not ready to accept recovery and they're going to use no matter what. And you can't, you know, you're going to just be wasting your breath trying to convince them. But if having structures in place like the site injection to, to monitor them and try to make, minimize the harm, that, that I think that would be very beneficial. But, yeah. Yeah. I, you're right. There. <laughs> There are those that are not ready, and and no matter what you say or do, I, I was one of them for many years. Right. Like, no matter no matter what you say or do, it's not going to push them to get better, which is very obviously very difficult for friends and family who care. 
but you know we each have our own processes and and, and it's just man the whole thing is is really it's tough yeah. going back to when I was speaking with Gabor you know we were talking about what families can do for those who aren't ready so to speak mm-hmm. you know and, and he was talking about how the you know the general approach that most families take because it is hard for them is you know it's one of frustration and anger and and you know they'll say why why are you using why can't you right. stop why are you killing yourself and you know he made a very good point and I had never looked at it this way putting yourself in that the person's shoes that's using that's just reinforcing the pain that's there and reinforcing the I'm not good enough as I am you know and so they're just it's just continuing that stigma of of self-deprecation that's going on you know for them and he he said you know what if families instead took an approach where they heal together because this is a family issue obviously right. you know it's a family Absolutely. dynamic there is a family pain so what if the family flipped the script so to speak and and instead of saying why aren't you doing this why can't you do this what if they said something to the effect of we see that you're in pain and we see that you're working with your pain the only way that you know how to right now. We are also in pain, and we are willing to do what we need to do in order to heal. And we would love it if you were there with us to join in that healing. No, now, and, course, and that's so that's huge. A, and often, right. And often, going back to one of the things I said in the beginning, that the idea that the the, the person that's addicted is separate from the from the rest of us that aren't addicted that are sober and. To me, right. that, that's also connected to the family dynamics. Often, that you know, you have the child that's addicted to heroin, and everybody else is okay, but they're but they're really not okay. They're just covering it up in different ways, and it's about allowing their having them helping them to see their connection to the to the addiction, which is so hard to do. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, it's been great chatting with you. I wish we had a little bit more time, but. Uh, it's been nice chatting with you too, Jeff. I, I'm glad we had this conversation. I appreciate, you know, people such as yourself that are exploring these very, very important topics and bringing them, you know, more into the light. Well, yeah, like I was saying, I'm, you know, I thank you very much for for what you're doing in the world and and bringing these topics out into the public. It's so needed and very much necessary right now. But you know, just regarding final thoughts, you know, what's coming to mind is. The fact that we do recover, you know, it's a saying that is uh, a bit of a mantra in the 12-step fellowships and, and one that's important to me. I, you know, as I wrote in my second book, I, it's true that we do recover. It's also true that we do die from this disease. Right. But, you know, if we start to take more of this integrative and holistic approach in my heart, I believe unquestionably that you know, the people that lose their lives to this so unnecessarily will be reduced significantly. You know, people do not need to keep dying at the rate that they are because of this uh, epidemic that's happening right now. So, you know, conversations like these are a step in the right direction and continuing to to be uh, out there in the world and, and speaking up and, and talking about this is so huge. So, uh, again, Jeff, thank you uh, for taking the time to chat about it with me today. Thank you, Chris. One of the things I want to add to that, and I feel strongly about it to me, is having talking about it in the right way because I feel that there's there's often people talk about it in very you know clear this is what it's about. And they just talk about it in very black and white ways, and it's, to yeah. me, I think it's important to talk about it 
and honor the complexity of the topics rather than just talking about it in platitudes and black and white yes. kind of ways. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. All right. Have a great one, Chris. You too, Jeff. Be well. All right. Bye. Bye.